The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Today, we are going to... um we're going to have our final sermon here from the book of Habakkuk. Now, after going through Mark uh, for two and a half years, Habakkuk has really flown by in just four weeks. It's incredible. But I'm really excited to, to get to the end of this book because the end is a recap and a climax of everything that's happened so far. So allow me to briefly recap what's happened and what's brought us to this point here in chapter 3. The book begins with Habakkuk calling out to God in distress. He's discouraged, and he's asking God, How long? How long, O Lord, will the righteous suffer? And God's response was basically, if you think it's bad now, just wait. It's only going to get worse. I'm sending the Chaldeans who will bring with them great brutality and incredible sorrow. So then Habakkuk called out in confusion to the Lord and he asked him, how can you possibly discipline us by correcting us using someone who is far less righteous than we are? And God responded with two major themes. First, He declared that the wicked are never actually prospering. Any prosperity that they receive is an illusion, and ultimately they will be destroyed. And also, he revealed, secondly, that the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, in chapter 3, we're going to see how Habakkuk responds to hearing God's answer. This is his final conclusion after all that God has said to him. So let's start off this sermon the right way and ask that we would receive God's blessing so that our heart might respond to God's word the same way that his did, with obedience and rejoicing. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this little minor prophet here in the Old Testament that means so much for us, that has taught us about the desperate need that we have for grace from you, that has taught us so far that all of our achievements on this earth are ultimately through faith, that our righteousness is not by our own doing, but it is by Christ's work. And God, we pray that now, as we continue in this book, we would be able to be like this prophet and turn, when we are discouraged, to joy. And God, we pray that all of our confusion about your character would turn to rejoicing in your providence and celebrating the fact that you are good even when we don't understand how. So God, I pray for encouragement today for the people. I ask that you would please give us great joy as we continue to look at these words uh, from the scripture. And God, I pray that you would please allow us now to be impacted not only by our minds understanding the words, but by your spirit applying these truths to our hearts. Lord, do things that we cannot do today. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's face it. Musicals are weird. Now, they're fun. I enjoy them. But they're very strange. Now, I would not call myself a musical aficionado. But I do enjoy a good musical on occasion. From the classics like Singing in the Rain and The Sound of Music to the modern animated films like Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, everybody's got a musical out there that they enjoy. But musicals are weird. Now, you have to admit they're unusual, and here's why. Because one individual, typically the protagonist, begins singing a song that is representative of their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions, and then eventually the entire neighborhood joins them. 
What is going on here? How did they learn those words? Have they rehearsed this? Is this what life is like every day in their world? I don't understand at all. Their entire community is like being pulled into the mind of the main character of the story. And in my life experience, this is not normal. But here in Habakkuk chapter 3, we see what the prophet is doing. is He is taking a private conversation that he has had with God and all of the wisdom that he has garnered from that conversation, and he is now turning it into a musical response so that the entire nation can join in with him. He writes a song so that everyone who is ever going to be affected by the coming suffering might join him in placing his trust in the Lord. So here are the words of the song of Habakkuk, starting in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways." I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the lands of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses or on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with arrows his You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, there are some times that the Bible gives us very clear instructions. It gives us imperative commands. But there are other times when the Bible teaches us by example. And in Habakkuk, 
There are no imperative commands. However, there is much that God has to teach us and that we can glean here about how this great prophet of God responds to the word of God and his promises. So today, we're going to build the structure of the sermon around the three main applications that we can get from the example of Habakkuk. Point number one, sing. Point number two, trust. And point number three, rejoice. Let's begin with point number one, sing. Now, it's amazing to me to see that Habakkuk's response to this entire situation was to sit down and to write a Holy Spirit-inspired song. But not just any kind of song. This is written in the style and the format of a psalm. You could even call Habakkuk chapter 3, Psalm 151. In verse 1, you'll see this title, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And then you see these words, according to Shigianoth. Now, there's some debate about the meaning of the word Shigianoth. And the words leading up to it in the ESV says, according to, but the actual Hebrew under, uh, under that, the literal rendering, is in the manner of. So this has led many to believe that Shigianoth is like a style of music or a particular tune. So you could say, sing this to the tune of Amazing Grace, and you could, you could play that. Other scholars think that this is a reference to when in the year <clears throat> this song was to be sung, what part of the season this was to be played. But all we know for sure is that this has some kind of a significance in terms of the musical aspects of this prayer. And then you'll see down in the middle of verse 3, and again after verse 9 and 13, there's this little familiar word, Selah. This is another mysterious word. A lot of people will tell you what it means, but ultimately no scholar is certain about the original intent of this word. However, Most believe that it comes along the lines of one of the following things. Either it means to like repeat it, like we would repeat a chorus in a song, or it means to slow down, or it means maybe there's a musical interlude. But all of those things all wrap around the same concept that this word is intentionally designed to tell you, pause and think. What is being said here is really important. Focus on this. So this is the only time that the word Selah is ever used outside of the book of Psalms. And it's right here and this little surprising spot in Habakkuk chapter 3. Then if you jump down all the way to 19, you'll see that there's a postscript which informs the choir master how to play this. You are to use stringed instruments. So you might be wondering, why are all these musical notations here? What was God trying to get through to us by leaving these musical indications in our Bibles today? And one of the reasons is simply this. Saved people sing. Christians are supposed to be a singing people. Now, the most common command in the entire Bible is, think, what do you think it is? Guess, not to have idols. It is a rejection of idolatry across the board. And you'll find that is the most common command in the Bible. But the second most common command in the entire Bible is to sing to God. Now here, we see that God is showing us through the example of Habakkuk, that we are called to sing. Now, why do we sing? Why do human beings in general sing? Why does the, the, the desire of our, uh, our heart just promote music? Why does every culture eventually have its own style of music? Now, I was actually really interested in seeing what atheists and secular folks would say about this. So I did some research into what evolutionary biologists or social psychologists or cultural anthropologists would say to answer this question. 
And all of them have a lot of theories. In fact, I was amazed at how many different crazy, outrageous, bizarre theories they've come up with. But ultimately, the honest among them will always come down to the same answer, which is, we don't know. It's very strange. Why do we sing? They have no genuine answer for it. But I think the Bible shows us exactly why we sing. Now, I'm going to give you five reasons why, in rapid succession and in no logical order. And the first is why humans in general sing, and the rest are all specific to us as believers. So why do we sing? Reason number one, which is broad across all humanity, we sing because God sings. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, we read these incredible words about our God. I mean, think about this. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And consider this final phrase. He will exult over you with singing. We have a singing God. And now I truly believe that one of the greatest joys in heaven is going to be that we get to hear the voice of God. We always talk about how we're going to sing around the throne, but we are going to join in his song as he sings over us. What an amazing joy it's going to be to hear the song of our eternal God as his own voice fills the entirety of the expanse of heaven with exuberant singing. We sing because God sings. All people are made in God's image, and God built us with unique voices. And that's a gift so that we can use them to glorify him. Your voice is literally the most complex and intricate instrument that has ever been created. So we as human beings sing because God sings, and we are made in his image. Now here's a second reason why we sing. We sing so that we might memorize rich spiritual truths. Now, this is what we do as Christians when we gather together or when you listen to Christian music on your own. Now, it's likely that no one in this room, including myself, can quote verbatim any line of my sermon from last week. I don't think I could do it. And I wrote it. And I said it. But music is different. It has a way of taking the words and making them seep down into the deepest crevices of our brains. And they stay there for ages and sometimes an entire lifetime. And when the eternal truths of God are put to music, it has the ability to help us build a systematic framework about how we understand God. Even if we don't understand, that's what we're doing. We are getting a theological education as we sing theologically rich songs. So listen to how Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 puts it. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The command here is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is the verb of the sentence. Let it dwell. And one of the ways that Paul instructs us to do this is by singing. We proclaim the truths of scripture so that that word might dwell in us richly. So we sing these songs so that when we, we sing them when we are together so that we remember these truths when we are separate. Now, God revealed immense and weighty, detailed truths to Habakkuk, a lot of things that he was not excited about initially. And in response, Habakkuk put them to music so he could allow himself to sing these truths and be reminded, but also so many others could sing and be reminded. Now, here's a third reason that we sing, which is to edify the body. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, we read these words, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now notice a connection here. We are singing to the Lord with our heart. We are not singing to each other. We are singing to the Lord with our heart. But in doing so, we are also addressing one another. So it does not matter if your voice is as beautiful as that of an angel or if it's even worse than mine. You sing to God. He hears you. And so I encourage you, call out loudly as we sing. Sing in harmony and in melody with us as we rejoice in what the Lord is doing, even if you don't think your voice is great. In fact, honestly, I am really encouraged when I hear people with less than stellar voices proclaiming their love for God as they're singing. That means that they are not being prideful and arrogant. They're being absolutely humble and saying, God, you deserve my praise. I'm going to give it to you whether or not I think my voice is worth it. Um, I had a friend growing up who uh, was a worship leader for a while at a church, and he stopped serving there, and he said, here's the problem. The music is just so bad. God deserves such better quality from us. And I said, well, are you guys doing the best you can? And he's like, yeah, we're doing the best we can, but it's just awful. Now, it was actually, I think, pretty decent. He was comparing himself. He wanted to be like a megachurch style, lights and flashy things, and that's the kind of atmosphere I grew up in. We don't encourage that, obviously. But what I said to him, I still would stand by, and I said, what would it take for you to get to a point where it would be worthy of God? What would it take for you to get to a point where God would say, wow, I've never heard anything like that before. You're not going to get there. So just do what you can to worship the Lord with all that you've got. Sing loudly to him because he's worthy. Now, reason number four, why do we sing? We sing because the Holy Spirit leads us to sing. Now, throughout the Bible, there seems to be this very strong connection that exists with God using music as a form of worship that pleases him. When people are singing in correspondence with a heart that loves him, it is pleasing to him. The Psalms, by the way, are emotionally raw. They are honest worship, heartfelt worship to God. That is a divinely inspired, God-written hymnal for the people of God to sing back to him. And in the New Testament, we discover that the indwelling Holy Spirit uses this singing to lead us into genuine, appropriate, Trinitarian worship. Now consider what I mean by looking at the wider context of the verse that we just saw a moment ago. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, or it could be rather, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now follow the logic here of the text. Follow what's happening here. The result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that we will then sing a melody to the Lord. Do you see that? If you are being filled with the Spirit, then you will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that melody will be a form of giving thanks continually and exhaustively over all things to God the Father. And our worship in song is accepted by the Father because we come before Him in the name of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we sing because the Holy Spirit leads us to shower praises upon Him who is worthy of every one of our praises. He is worthy of eternal adoration. 
So here's the fifth and final reason that we will consider today. This, again, is by no means exhaustive. There's a lot of other reasons we sing. But we sing because it builds our trust in God. And this is, I believe, the most significant and central one to what we're seeing happening here in Habakkuk. Remember that Habakkuk has been experiencing great turmoil in his soul. He sees that there is an onslaught coming. A battle is really close to being waged against his own people. And God has said, I'm sending them. That, that is my doing. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. It will take place. It is guaranteed. Now, there's a big difference between knowing facts and believing them. Everyone knows that if you drive 20 miles over the speed limit, you're probably going to get a ticket. But that didn't stop the guy who sped past me like a bullet this morning on the southern state. Everyone knows that fast food is bad for you. But last time I was at Taco Bell, business was just fine. Everyone knows these things, but we, there's a difference between knowing and actually believing them. Now, we can know the facts about God. We can know the truths about him. We can intellectually understand his promises. But music has a way of uniquely bringing together our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And when we're using music to the glory of God, it draws us to worship God with all of who we are, our entire person. So when my mouth begins to declare truths that I intellectually know, I take what's in my mind and I use my body, I use my strength, it leads my heart to believe them. It leads my heart to remind myself, this is who God is, I must trust in him. Look at, I think what this is what Psalms is talking about, Psalm 59, 16. It says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud for your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Now, if you read that psalm, you'll notice he's writing that before God delivers him. He's praying that God would deliver him from distress. And he's saying, I trust you because you have already done this. I see your work and I trust that you will continue to deliver. Now, I've often heard people extol the faith of Paul and Silas because they trusted God so much that when they were in the Philippian jail, Acts 16, they're in this jail. At midnight, they start singing praises, and everybody cheers for them. Wow, look how much faith they have. But I truly believe the reason that they were singing, in part, was to build their faith, was to say, believe it. God is good even though I'm in chains right now. God is gracious even though I'm getting ready to be tortured in the morning. God is good even though they might kill us. They are singing these songs in part to build their trust and to remind them of who God is. So they are worshiping and praising God even in the midst of incredible trials and terrible circumstances. Habakkuk, he was a loving shepherd. He was a good leader for the people of Israel because as this trial is coming, God gives him this hymn this divinely inspired song, so that they could do the same thing that Paul and Silas were doing. In the midst of the craziness of the trial, they can sing this song and build their trust in God. And from this example, I want to encourage you to sing. There's many other reasons that we could give, uh, but I want to just encourage you, fill your mouth with good, theologically rich songs. The Lord is worthy of such praises. But this also brings us now nicely to our second point, <clears throat> which is this, trust. Now, everything we've been saying so far, I mean, we've, we've just kind of scratched the outer parts here of the book of Habakkuk in chapter 3. Now we're going to dive in a little bit deeper and see what's going on in Habakkuk and what is he singing about. Now, these lyrics reveal a deep and, avi- and abiding trust in God. 
We see that here that specifically he is trusting God for two different things. First, he is trusting that God would show mercy. And secondly, that God would show justice. Now, if you remember back to chapter 1, This is a very interesting turn of events because that's when Habakkuk had his big concern. What was he worried about? He could not see how God was showing mercy to his people and how he would show justice by punishing the wicked. He couldn't see it. And now that God has answered him, he responds by praising God that he is both merciful and just. Now let's see how both of those things can be seen here in the text. First, look at how Habakkuk trusted that God would punish the wicked. In verse 2 it says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Now this is speaking about how God had worked in Israel's past. He is calling to mind how even centuries earlier, God had delivered his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. He had delivered his people many times from foreign warriors. And due to some of the specifics uh, that are here in the text, some of the direct wording, how it borrows from some earlier psalms, most scholars believe that he's specifically speaking about the downfall of Pharaoh in the flood that took place when God closed the Red Sea back together on top of them. Then Habakkuk was going to speak, to, uh, he's going to speak here using what's called a prophetic perfect tense. Now, that means that in our text, things in English look like they're past tense because it's very close to the past tense. But what it's doing is it's saying, this is what God is about to do in the future. It is absolutely certain. There is no doubt this will take place. So he's now going to speak about future events using a prophetic perfect tense in Hebrew. Verses 3 through 4 says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. And if you jump down to verse 6, it says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Now, all of this sounds right. Right? Like if we want to know what the definition of God is, this is an excellent description of him from the Old Testament. Right? This all sounds like it's perfectly in line with what we would think about God normally from our scripture. But then there is a sharp turn that takes place in the text. And Habakkuk is going to begin revealing some of the horrendous and the gruesome events that are coming. He is going to talk about the terrible things that will happen at the hands of the Babylonians when they attack. And Habakkuk is reeling that even those are occurring because God has sent these armies against Judah. And Habakkuk attributes these events, these evil atrocities that are going to take place to the handiwork of God himself. Because God is the one who is bringing this judgment upon them. Verse 5, before him, who? Before God, the same God we've been talking about. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Verses 11 and 12, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Now let me ask you the question, who is it that's performing the threshing the violent activity that's taking place against these other nations. Who is it that's, that's showing this fury? Is it not the Babylonian army? Yet he's saying, God, you are doing these things. And in the end of verse 13, it says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. 
Now, verse 16 says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble, for the day of trouble, for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I'm just waiting. I see that there's destruction coming for Judah. They're going to take us into captivity. And then I'm going to faithfully wait because I know destruction is coming upon them. Like you said, they are not prosperous. They will be destroyed. Notice that Habakkuk has released them. He's released the Babylonians. He's holding no bitterness against them, no hatred against them. He can truly say, Lord, they're in your hands. And that's when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now Habakkuk has now learned that God's plan is much bigger than his own life. The providence of God is working towards grander schemes than he can even imagine. And as much as the very real danger of these armies are coming that have caused Habakkuk to feel fear, it says he's quivering like his bones are rotting as he trembled, yet he still trusted that God would be the one who exacts justice. And much more significantly, Habakkuk had learned to trust that God would show his people mercy. So absolutely, now he believes in justice. Now he is declaring God is going to show judgment on the wicked. But notice that he also believes now in mercy. The prophet requested in verse 3, in wrath remember mercy. So if this is all you see, you might say, well, he's still not sure. He's still wondering if God will do it. He's still pleading with God to do it. But it becomes absolutely clear throughout the remainder of the psalm that Habakkuk has no doubt that God will indeed remember mercy. Look again to verse 13. It says, you went out. Why? You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now, anointed here is not a reference to the Messiah. It's a plural. It's speaking about the people of God who were set apart. But here it says that you went out. Now, if you read through the Old Testament consistently, what you'll find is when it says that he went out, it's usually a reference to war. And he went out to war, right? God went out to war. He is punishing. He is disciplining. But it says that he went out for a purpose. What is the purpose? For the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. God is taking action. He is threshing the nations, but he is doing that so that his people will ultimately be saved. And the ones who had been set apart were going to be ultimately brought to him. Now, this horrendous torment was by no means meaningless. God was weaving together events that would eventually bring the Messiah who would save his people. So Habakkuk trusted. He believed the promises of God, even when he couldn't see it with his eyes, what God was doing. Today is Mother's Day. Uh, My wife, Ashley, is not with us. We had a couple children up in the night sick, and so she's not able to be here today. But she's the best mother that I know. And last year, many of you were here, and you walked through really the saddest trial of our life together. Uh, Early one Sunday morning, Ashley miscarried. And that was the day that I had planned to come here and to announce to the church, I had this big elaborate thing, I was going to tell you, we were pregnant, we were going to have another baby. That very morning, Ashley miscarried. And uh, instead of telling you about the baby coming, I came up here and I just wept. And you, if you were here, would remember... Um, and at the time, I, I couldn't see what exactly God was doing. I didn't know. Before church that morning, Ashley and I listened to the same song over and over on repeat. It was a song called, Though You Slay Me. And the singers are quoting from Job thirteen fifteen, which says, Though you slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, though God might 
kill me. I will still trust in him. And I was reminded that our suffering was purposeful. It was purposeful because God was doing a work far beyond what I could understand in that moment. Now, I'm not going to pretend it didn't hurt. In fact, it still does. But I can trust that God was doing something. And in this specific instance, we can look at what God desired to do. Because God brought us Mordecai. Now, he would not be here if Ashley had not miscarried. There's just an overlap in when the pregnancies would have taken place. Two days ago, Mordecai turned six months old, and he, if you haven't met him, he's like a human jello jiggler. He is this incredible, chubby, beautiful baby filled with life and joy. And this morning, I sat on my bed in the very same place where, where Ashley and I cried together when she miscarried, and I held him in my, in my arms, and I could say, I see, God, what you were doing. And I can see that God had a plan to bring this baby. Now, why did he want this child to be in the world and, and not the other? I don't know. And I won't ever know, but I can trust and see that God know what he was doing. But please understand, we don't always get a Mordecai to answer the question why. We don't always get an answer to why our trials are so difficult in the moment. You might never have a noticeable or comprehensible reason for the purpose from your perspective in this life. If you read through the book of Job, you know, we we read that, that verse, Job 15, 13, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though we read that, I don't think Job ever knew what God was doing. I don't think God ever revealed to him why he experienced so much suffering. But God used that book, even in this instance, for me and for the growth of his people throughout the ages. He is working far beyond the life of this one individual man in history. So we don't always get an answer. We don't always get a Mordecai. But there can be no doubt in our minds that God loves us. Romans 8, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, I just want you to think about this for a moment. Paul is arguing here from the greater to the lesser. He is giving you the difficult and going down to the easy. God has already given us the most costly and precious gift in the universe. Think about this. If it were anything else that existed other than his son, he could just make more. You want money? I'll make more. You want stuff? I'll make more. He could give us anything and just create more. But he gave us the most precious, costly jewel of the universe. He gave us his son so that he might die for sinners like us. So in your trials, do not doubt his love. He has already proved it. There is always an objective historical evidence that you can point to and say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know this. I know that you love me, and your love for me is evident, and I can trust that you are truly doing something for your glory and for my good, because you have promised, and I have seen your promises, and I have seen your love and what you've done in sending your son. So when you pray, remember that God is never doing nothing. He is always up to something, working out his own purposes. So join with Habakkuk in trusting that God does know what he's doing. Which leads us now to our third and final point of the morning, which is this. We must rejoice. Now, regardless of our circumstances, we must rejoice. Habakkuk closes out this book, regardless of his circumstances, with a commitment to rejoice in God. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, 
yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on high places. Now consider just a few quick things about rejoicing. Rejoice is just the verb that means have joy, have joy, have joy. You are commanded, have joy. The unsaved people in this world cannot have joy. Not genuine joy that the Bible talks about. There is no true joy apart from God. They have to settle for temporary gratification of the flesh that will give them just the vaguest sense of pleasure before it fades away, leaving them completely empty. But Christians are capable of having genuine joy. But even greater than that truth, we are not only able to have joy, but God commands us to have it. He desires for us to experience it. Consider what it says, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. It is not optional for the Christian. We must have joy. It is a command. Joy is a fruit that is birthed in us by the Holy Spirit, which all true Christians do have to varying degrees. And God is immensely invested in giving us joy. I want you to notice that in the Bible, joy is never, not even one time, tied to our circumstances. And thank God for that, because if it was chained to our wealth or our health or our comfort or our ease or relationships or reputation or possessions, then it would be just like a passenger being chained up to the deck of the Titanic. It sounds great for a while. It's like a vacation. Everything's perfect and happy. People are bringing me food. I'm in the hot sun. It's delightful. I'm on this cruise ship. But all of a sudden, it hits an iceberg and it goes down. And everything you thought was wonderful, a great ride all too soon becomes nothing more than a devastating disaster of epic proportions. That is what happens when we tie our joy to our circumstances. It will eventually fall. It will fail. God is really the only true source of joy. And he has made a way for us to have it. And it's by abiding in him. John 15, 9 through 11 says this. As the Father has loved me, so, or even so, or in this way, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, this is the grounds of what he's going to say in a few moments, that God has loved us, and the same kind of love that the Trinity has for one another, we can enter into that love. So I have loved you, so abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So you know that if you're walking in step with the Spirit and obedience to the Lord, then you are, in that sense, abiding. And then verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that, or so that, or for the purpose of, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God desires us to have that kind of joy. And he says, I have done this, I have loved you, so that your joy may be full now jesus is the most joyful human being that has ever walked the face of this earth and jesus says to us the kind of joy that i have my own joy can be in you we have the ability to have genuine joy we can abide remain hold fast to and revel in the love of god and when we do the circumstances of our lives are minor in comparison to the fullness of joy that god has given to us and habakkuk is just doing this very same thing consider verse 19 again It says, 
Well, before we look at it, just consider this question to yourself. How is Habakkuk able to make this turn? In the very beginning, he's questioning God in chapter 1. He is questioning God. He is concerned about God's justice and mercy. And now he turns to praising him with a song. How does he make that shift? I think verse 19 answers your question. The very close of the book says, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk is not a mountain climber. This is not literal. This is poetic language declaring that his soul is being lifted high out of the depths of despair and into the mountains by God himself. The Lord has given him the strength so that he could have joy, even in the midst of the greatest trials. The trials he's experiencing are probably far greater than anything you and I ever will. So let's take a quick step back and see what some of those trials are that he's anticipating. Very quickly, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's probably hard for us to understand this in our modern world. We are so used to going to the grocery store and having an abundance of food so that we can be very picky about what we like and we don't like. We can get literally anything we desire is there for us to choose from. It's right at our fingertips. But in the ancient world, in an agrarian society, when the trees bear no fruit and the fields have no grain and the flocks and the herds are cut off and the stalls are empty, it means you're going to die of starvation. It means there's nothing left. Yet Habakkuk can say, in the midst of that, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will take joy, not in that stuff, but in the God of my salvation. Now, as we close out now the book of Habakkuk, I want to show you how that worked out for him. Now, we don't know specifics of his personal story, but we know about his nation. We know about the people of Judah and what happened with them. Judah was taken into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And Habakkuk was probably among the people who was taken with them. We don't know for sure. But if he was, he surely died there in that captivity. But God used that time to refine the people of Judah. And after a lifetime in captivity, 70 years, they were released to return and to rebuild Jerusalem. And you can find all about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And after the wall is built and the captives return, the very next thing that they do is they gather everyone together and they read the Bible to them in public. And we find that in Nehemiah chapter 8. They read the book of the law in the presence of all of them. They explain it. They give the sense of it. And the result was that they began to weep. But here's what we read about in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone that has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I hope you see the parallel here. I'm going to help you with it. It looks to me like Ezra has been singing the song of Habakkuk. It seems to me that he has been studying it, that he is using almost a direct phrase from him. He is saying, I will rejoice in God because he is my strength. That is what Habakkuk has been saying. Now here, Ezra says, we're back in the land and we have everything that we want. We have everything that we could need. So go eat the fat, go drink the sweet wine. And in the midst of having everything, the people were weeping. Not because they didn't have a lack of, because they had a lack of things, but because they had a lack of holiness. And Ezra says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So church, 
in the good times, remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Beware he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. Are you actually finding your joy in Christ? Because now is the time to ground yourself in that, not when the bad things show up. It is time now that we prepare ourselves, that we delight in him, and it is always better for you in the short term and the long. If we do this, if we delight ourselves in him, in his person, his love, his promises, then we can be like the saints that are referenced in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, which says, For you had compassion on those imprisoned, and consider this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. People broke in and robbed you and stole all your stuff, and you were joyful since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We have a better possession. We have Jesus. We have the treasure of the entire universe. So sing. Sing about him. Sing to him. Sing to remember him. Sing to build your trust in him. And trust in him. Trust in his promises. Trust the gospel. Trust that God's love for you led him to send his own son to die for sinners like you and me. And trust that he rose again for our salvation. And trust that we will be with him forever. And finally, in light of all of these truths, rejoice. Before we close, I just want to say one final word to those here who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, as I've said in this sermon, there is no joy that is available to us without Jesus. There is no lasting, permanent joy without Christ. The Bible teaches us that there is nothing except for a fearful anticipation of judgment. But I plead with you, see your need. See that God requires perfection, and you are not perfect. Neither am I. But God provides what God demands. He demands perfection and he provided it in his own son who would die for sinners like you and me. And if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. So I hope that you'll find me after the service and I hope that you'll desire to know more about this this man, Jesus, who came to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Dear Lord in heaven, we thank you that this book has been so valuable to us in preparing us for what is to come. Lord, we don't know like Habakkuk knew. He was aware that there was coming impending doom, that there was judgment to be seen in the Babylonians. Lord, we know that there is something coming. We don't know what it is or where it will come from. But Lord, we trust that in the midst of trials that will surely arise, when they come, that we can stand firm in this, that you love us, and that we can abide in this, that our hope is not found on this world or anything in it, but in you. And God, I pray that each person here would be delighted in Christ so that they might sing and trust and rejoice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.